Hello friends, welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Wednesday Wake Up. I am Gregory Maloof, your host, and today we have a very special episode. We are here today with Caverly Morgan. Caverly Morgan is a meditation teacher and the founder of Peace in Schools, which is a nonprofit that created the nation's first four-credit mindfulness class in public high schools. Caverly is also the founder of the Presence Collective, which is a community of cross-cultural contemplatives committed to personal and collective transformation. And last but not least, Caverly Morgan is also the author of her forthcoming book, The Heart of Who We Are, Realizing Freedom Together. Welcome, Caverly. Gregory, thank you so much. It's really a delight to be here. I'm so excited to be with you. I just want to chime in and say that you and I last hung out about six or seven years ago on a retreat and that you were leading and we all loved it. And so I'm just so happy to see that you have published a book and I'm so happy to be with you today on Wednesday Wake Up. I'm just, yeah, I I mentioned to you before we started rolling what an honor it is to talk to a fellow practitioner, someone who has the same love of these topics. So again, thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. So you wrote a book. Let's dive right in. I'm so excited for you. Tell us a little bit about the book. So this book for me was an opportunity to reconcile so many different things. In a way, I think of the book as one giant reconciliation process. I hope that my readers have some of the same questions I had when tackling these queries. You know, really, I I feel in a way like I had burning inquiry around how we reconcile the absolute and relative plane of experience. I, I knew so much about my own direct experience of the absolute. And I also knew that I had a lot of questions around how relative existence could reflect my deepest understanding because I could very easily look around and see all the ways it didn't. Gotcha. Gotcha. What was the most notable contrast that you were noticing that caused that tension between the relative and the absolute that sort of gave rise to the inquiries that fed the book? Thank you. It's a great question because I had someone recently point out how much I talk about race in the book. And Mm -hmm. I realized that I focused on race because that was the place that I could see the most discrepancy in a sense. So here I've been this Dharma teacher, Dharma practitioner committing to a life of non-harming. But certainly when I was training monastically, I was not giving any attention to the systems that I was part of, all of the ways I wasn't paying attention to how something like systemic racism was, yeah, something I was participating in, maintaining. I I wasn't, I wasn't aware of my role. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost as if uh, we can sit on the cushion 
And then there's this blind spot interpersonally or socially. And even though we're committed to taking a stand for non-harming and keeping precepts perhaps and keeping up our practice, then we leave the cushion, we enter the, the world. And then there's that tension of like, well, how do I, how do I really live that non-harming? And I, I noticed that's a big theme of the book for sure. As I left the monastery, I became so clear about the degree of harm that the conditioned world around me reflected back to me. And so again, a place of deep inquiry was, what role am I playing in this? And what are all the ways that I've been and continue to be unconscious uh, to my participation? Mm -hmm. Unconscious of how I'm maintaining systems that aren't reflections of my deepest understanding or love. Another aspect of reconciliation in the book for me was recognizing in my personal life how much the tools I learned monastically transformed my experience of being in the world, being alive. And it was striking to me as I paid more attention to systemic issues, um, collective unconscious biases, um, collective um, systemic issues, I, I became fascinated by the way in which the tools I was offered were all designed for the personal. And I saw a gap. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So you're basically saying that the institutional setup of personal practice where you're kind of alone, sitting on a cushion, focusing on the inward journey, then there's this sort of gap or chasm that exists between the personal transformation and then when you step out into the world and you see all of these systems that you're actually still a part of, you don't go into, well, from my perspective, you don't go into the eightfold path to find out how to fix systems or do how engage systems even. It really is a lot of internally focused work. And it sounds like from the monastic training you had, that was almost what I would you say, like isolating and a feeling of separateness that occurred there? Thank you. I wouldn't have said it that way at the time, but I do see now that that's how I was receiving the teachings. I, I was really taking the teachings in and focusing on, in a sense, my personal suffering. So I feel like there was this, this approach of, um, well, it's your suffering, it's your creation, and it's your job to clean it up. And so it was very, like, me focused in that way. Interesting. Yeah. So in that sense, it's not the tool itself almost, but the way the tool is maybe um, delivered and or the focus as you're receiving it. Absolutely. Yeah. Like I take full responsibility for how I interpreted the teachings. And what was exciting about this book project was in a way I got to spell out what I wish someone had spelled out for me when I was training monastically. I wish I wish someone was drawing those links then, although that would have taken away the joy of working on this book. It really was a very rich process for me, full of tremendous learning, which is not done, um, but incredibly engaging to ask how are each of the the primary tools that have been so transformative in my life, how can they be applied not just personally, but collectively? Gotcha. And in in very specific ways, right? Right, yeah, practically. Mm -hmm. Very practically. Yes, definitely. Yeah, and I've I've read about half the book now, and I really appreciate what you're saying about reconciliation because it does seem like the 
primary theme of the book is this reconciliation between self and other. It's like personal practice for self and other liberation. And we do have, as you know, uh, both of us being practitioners, that we always talk about our highest aspiration being freedom, you know, from suffering for ourselves, but that it serve all beings. And it feels good when we say that, and we mean it sincerely when we have our aspirational practices, but it is a different story getting off the cushion, out the door, into the world, and feeling like that reconciliation isn't taught necessarily. We're kind of like, how do I, what do I do now that I'm outside dealing with the chaos of climate change and social injustice, environmental injustice? And it's not exactly spelled out in the teachings how we make, how we bridge that gap. And it seems like your book is an, an attempt to bridge that gap between the personal and other when I first got the PDF uh, from Sounds True and I saw the title, I was struck by the title. And it was interesting because so many Dharma books, mindfulness books, therapy books have the word heart in it. It's <laughs> heart it's this, heart that, you know, <laughs> live heart, this heart, that heart, you know, it's everywhere. When I saw the heart of who we are, there was something about it, the way that the we stood out to me and also the together, the word together, realizing freedom together. I thought that was such a great, it's almost like my new definition of Sangha, mm -hmm. realizing freedom together. Like oftentimes when I talk about Sangha, I talk about Sangha showing up to support each other in practice and realizing freedom. I, I love this realizing freedom together part of the title. It's just beautiful. I think it really captures the book. Well, thank you. And I appreciate that it, it captures that reconciliation process as well. So the heart of who we are is another way to speak about absolute experience it's it's that which is not born it's that which doesn't die it's that which is unchanging and the realizing freedom together is the the movement so in a sense the title is capturing the stillness and then the realizing freedom together is capturing the movement the yes and we do have these bodies and we're moving through space and we're creating systems of oppression and we're maintaining them and we're subject to them and we're we have relative experience as well so from that relative perspective we long to be free you know from the heart of who we are we're inherently free mm -hmm. from the relative plane we're we're wanting to become more free than when we look around at our relative world, we see that we are. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah, beautifully put. So, Caverly, you have a background in Zen Buddhism, and you are a Zen monastic. And I would love uh, for you to share a little bit about that journey, what brought you to Zen Buddhism, and particularly monasticism, because in, you know, as you know, as practitioners, sometimes, like, the, the monastic community are kind of the ephemeral superheroes their way out out there and we're like oh my gosh what is it like to take robes and go off to a monastery so I'm curious what called you to that what was your experience and then how does that experience um, so powerfully influence the book that you wrote I do talk about the pull to become a monastic in the book because I was hoping it would be a very relatable story for many people in that I I kicked and screamed much of the way. <laughs> I really did, including um, saying to my teacher, sure, I'll go to the monastery as long as that doesn't make me a monk. My my teacher called everyone monks. And, and where I was training, there was actually no attention to 
to being non-binary or gender um, conversations about gender. And so that's, that's in the book as well, right? Like, so here mm-hmm. we are in this monastic setting and never talking about race, never talking about gender. Um, and all in the name of, because we're focusing on the absolute. Um, but as you're hearing, what interested me is how does all of the, how do all of our current question marks, the places we can get stuck, come to bear in, in our understanding of the absolute? So I have digressed <laughs> and we'll come back to this question uh, about Zen. I loved the heart of Zen. I, mm-hmm. and I and I still do. I, I had someone once say that I teach in the original spirit of Zen and that was a real compliment to me. I appreciated that the, that that person said that because I felt that at the end of the day the original spirit of Zen is it's about truth, love and understanding and, and truth. Mm-hmm. And specifically about ultimate reality, about the unity of being. So, so this book came out of eight years of monastic training, but indirectly and directly in ways it came not just out of what I learned at the monastery, but how to reconcile what I didn't learn at the monastery. Exactly. Yeah. I noticed that in the book. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned reconciliation. Maybe you can explain to folks from the perspective of a mindfulness teacher, what the differences in the in the teaching and training when we talk about relative and absolute personal liberation, collective liberation, maybe just highlighting that I think could be hugely helpful. It's wonderfully put in the book, but I'd like to hear hear you talk about it personally. Yeah, thank you. When I'm speaking about the absolute in this book, I'm speaking about that which is unchanging. I'm speaking about pure consciousness. I'm speaking about that which is never born, that which never dies. I'm speaking about the relative as that which is changing, that which comes and goes, that relative experience that we have of being in the world and getting caught up in all the stuff we get caught up in. And, And that includes the personal experience of relative existence as well as collective experience. So, for example, at the monastery, we focused on personal relative experience mm-hmm. tools that support seeing through the suffering created the suffering that arises right. within personal relative right. experience the part of suffering created by the your personal mind right yes, yes your actions yes. your thoughts in the moment yes. and we didn't have a lot of conversations about what is this personal mind so we weren't tracing back to at least in my experience, I wasn't tracing back to larger questions about the nature of reality. I was paying attention to personal suffering, how suffering got created, how to end suffering. But I wasn't, it was like there was a step behind that that I actually didn't take until after becoming, um, after being a monastic. Mm. Yeah, beautifully put. And I can see that in the book. It's, um, I'm going to actually just read a couple of the chapter titles because what I really liked when you were talking about reconciliation is that each chapter, I think all of them, begin with the word return and a return to community, return to truth, return to wholeness. And I thought that was beautiful the way the book was laid out. Can you explain a little bit about that 
process of returning? Yeah, it's it's funny that you point that out. I haven't had someone reflect that back to me yet, but it it's striking to me because at first my editor had a raised eyebrow. I think it just seemed like <laughs> this is awfully repetitive. <laughs> like how much returning yeah, do you have to yeah, do, Carly, before yeah. you get it right? Uh, but but I think by the time she got through the manuscript, she saw the ultimate point of that, which is that what return for me points to is at the heart of a direct approach to practice. So rather than we are going to strive to become enlightened, return is a constant reminder at the top of every chapter and woven through each chapter, I hope. That was my intention anyway. I hope I've been successful. Um, Woven through is the remembrance that what we are is what we're seeking. And so the return to is a way to acknowledge that we're remembering something. It's not that we're striving to get something that we lack. And given how much the personal ego is fed, uh, you mm-hmm. know, lives in the mind of scarcity, <laughs> lack, and deprivation, right. I wanted to have constant reminders that, that this is about remembrance. Lovely. Yeah, I really caught my attention when I was reading the book that I, like I said earlier, about halfway through, and I just liked how each chapter was a return to something. And I think from my perspective, you were very successful in weaving weaving that in. And I it reminds me of just this idea that the energy of the ego that seeks the liberation often trips itself up and that the, the clinging and the grasping to become anything often is the biggest hindrance to the meditator and ultimately has to be let go of along with the path and everything else. And so you really highlight that well, I thought, in the book for sure. Well, thank you. It's it's really only highlighted because that's a place that I've gotten very stuck in my own journey. You know, I, I remember the moment I saw the degree to, I mean, it wasn't one moment, but I, I remember the era, I should say that I really saw how identified I was with the witness of my experience and therefore still separate from experience. And from that witness place, still striving, seeking, uh, hoping to attain, you know, all activities of a separate self, all what you describe so beautifully as like the places that are, that are, the, that are the trip ups. And yet it was all with spiritual language. I need to let go of this. I need to um, see through this. I need to get beyond this. I need to transcend this, right? Like these are like beautiful spiritual sentiments that maybe no one would would argue with on on one layer of things. Um, and then and yet, as you point out, they're they're tripping places if we're not asking, and who is this I? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love the way you're describing sort of the energy of the ego, because the energy of the on paper, it looks, you can't argue with it, right? It's like, yes, there is, you are on the meditation cushion, it's your body, you're breathing, it's not someone else's breathing. So yes, relatively speaking, compared to the absolute, there is a person there doing the work. But then there's this deeper level, which is one of the hardest ones to see is that the very energy of desire for transcendence sometimes gets in the way of transcendence. I mean, I've been a practitioner now for 28 years, um, and I still find myself 
getting angry at not being enlightened. I'm like, God, what this is taking so long. Like I've put all this effort now and it's this eye making, right? I should be, I've put in the work and then I realize, oh my gosh, you're creating more suffering for yourself. Well, it's so fascinating, isn't it? I love that you can chuckle about it. I can too. It's, it, it's important for us to have a sense of humor about these things, a spiritual sense of humor. And because I, I think what, what we forget to pause to ask is, is it true that there's a person here practicing? Is what, what does that mean exactly? Okay. There is a, there is a physical body here, but how often do we even ask, but what is that physical body made of? Is it actually truly separate? Sure, we can argue for all the ways it appears to be separate to the eye, but what if we really explore deeply, what is the nature of the body and what is the nature of reality? And are, the, are those two separate natures? Or is there actually only one nature in a sense to reference the book is there only one heart of who we are right right i'm liking how you're using i had taken a couple notes when i was reading and i saw this theme of separation and unity was big and i really enjoyed how you used so as a therapist you know we talk about the ego a lot and and as a dharma teacher we talk about the transcendence part of it and you had a really interesting way within the book i thought to be able to highlight the fact that when the heart's contracted, there is an innate separateness or presumption of separateness that happens simultaneously with that contraction. And I think somewhere in the book, you had said that um, maybe it was your students in peace and schools who had identified that part of the mind as like a limited mind, right? And I really loved that because it made me realize, yes, every time I'm contracted into that I-making, that my-making I'm automatically limited. I've, I've, I've separated myself from something, minimally the truth <laughs> of what I am. And I thought there's a lot of it of the book that you really talk about that eloquently, this the nature of separation and divisiveness that occurs through the ego. Can you speak a little bit to that dividedness? Sure. I mean, what what's most important to underline, I think, is that the dividedness is a creation that that it's not actually real, though it feels extremely real. And when we're identified with it, when it feels real, then we act on behalf of it, hence furthering the divide <laughs> right. personally right, and of course. collectively. And so this aspect of what's not real is also another reconciliation of the book. This is part of the absolute and relative conversation. So separation on one level of course can be defined as real we you know you are sitting there i'm sitting here if you throw something at me and it hits me it's going <laughs> to feel a particular way so we can talk about having two separate bodies you know here here in this room and we can talk about how separation gets amplified i mean that let's pretend there's no charge behind it like right like you're just tossing something over it hits me there's impact what I think you're pointing to in this line of inquiry is the suffering that gets created once there is meaning attributed to this apparent separation. So most importantly, this separation is not actually real, mm -hmm. right? Then on top of that or beyond that, what meaning is 
attributed to the perception of separation. Uh-huh. So if I see you over there and me over here, now othering can be born. So this gets into the conversation about the collective. So you are a dude. I've got a thing about dudes. That doesn't, dudes don't work for me. Or dudes, I've got, yeah, I, it, I have an issue with being in the same room with dudes. Or whatever, right? Whatever my thing is, it's no longer just, okay, to the eye, it appears that we are two separate beings and therefore apparent separation arises. It's apparent separation plus the meaning that gets attached. And we have personal meaning as well as collective meaning. So how can we truly get beyond the divisiveness of a process of othering if we can't get to the core of of who we really are, if we can't get to a direct experience of the unity of being? That's incredible. Uh, Yeah, my mind is lit up in like three different ways from listening to you talk about that because I'm hearing the not only the delusion of separateness, but also the fact that once the mind creates the other in the way that it does, of course, like it always does, that's what it... So that's what its primary job is, right? So once it creates the othering, then it reifies kind of both parties. It makes each party solid. Yep. And fixed. We, yeah, it's like we start pinning the traits and the stereotypes and the judgments onto the other to make the other even more real. And we don't realize that we're creating the other out of our negative brain bias, our prejudice, like you said, our cultural overlay. So you and I, white folks, we have an inherited meaning making about that, what that means to us personally, collectively. And as we other in the world, we don't realize because it's non-conscious that we are putting those biases and prejudices onto the other that we are creating in our minds and, of course, in our hearts. Perfectly said. That process has a root, though. And that's what I find most exciting about this topic. It's the the root is that original faulty perception. And then everything is a ripple based on that original faulty perception. So I see myself as solid, fixed, as you said, like dense, um, a, a fixed entity Therefore, I'm the subject of experience and everything else is the object of experience. As soon as that subject-object experience arises, we can only expect a dualistic manifestation of existence. That is the nature of that perception for there to be duality. Right. And the separateness, it sounds like from what you're saying, I can see it clearly now. It's, it's bringing an even further richness to the book. The, the separation is the soil out of which things like social injustice, environmental injustice, this sense of the environment is separate from us or this race or class of people. I am in this class, you're in that class, othering. And then it, it's like a breeding ground for negativity and judgment and criticism But like you're saying is that the mindfulness practice allows you to go beneath the separateness, beneath that dualistic framework, as you're saying, to the heart of who we are. And if I'm understanding you correctly, the premise of the book is that the more we can ground ourselves and return to the heart of who we are, that cuts the root of the poison, as the Buddha would say, that gives rise and feeds. It's like the lifeline of 
discrimination of the discriminating part of the mind. Am I hearing yes, you correctly on that? Absolutely. I think you're you're cutting to the core message of the book in so in so many ways. And what I loved about the writing process is that it doesn't simply say we're all one and so we need to just get all get there and then all these things will take care of themselves. Because right. this book leaves a lot of room for guess what? I'm, I identify as being part of a marginalized population and my lived experience is not, we are all one. And so there's that plane of reality that is, that has a very particular reality to it. And so given that, how, how can we have tools that are infused with an understanding of oneness that support a dismantling of what isn't working on this relative plane where we do have, we're creating systems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see what you're saying. Yeah, that's a very, that's a very interesting subtlety. If I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, the, the fact that it's, it can be very easy to then take the Dharma or mindfulness or whatever the practice is and say, if we just adopt this framework as the absolute, we can then fix the pro if we could all just get into this one absolute framework, then everything would work itself out. And what you're saying is that's another trap, as we were talking. That's another stumbling block is not being attached to your perspective of that absolute, which you then impose on other <laughs> on others because it's a form of othering. Yeah, I mean, you're riffing off what I was just saying in a really beautiful, natural way. I mean, I that actually isn't where I was going in that exact second, but it's absolutely connected to and related to the, the point I was making. It's, that's just another form of othering, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So now, again, the, at the root, what, what is worth paying attention to from my perspective is when am I identifying with the I that's holding on to any belief system? And then how can I see how can practice create the opportunity for me to see through belief systems, get really clear about belief systems, how they're functioning, operating, manifesting, and get to the direct experience that's underneath the belief? Gotcha. Mm -hmm. If I'm identified with the belief system, then there it's very easy for someone else to be other than my belief system. Right. But the direct experience that I'm referring to here is one that we actually all share, even though we might talk about it differently. I mean, we all share the experience of being. That has nothing to do with a belief system. That has nothing to do with uh, a, a structure that could be imposed on anyone else. We all share being. And then in light of the topic of today and the book, what shifts to me is the ultimate question when we're recognizing that that being is actually a shared being. It's not Jeffrey's being, Caverly's being, those are separate the way that we see our bodies to be separate. So you're looking beneath the perception then, and the unity is the is presence, in a sense, presence and being, which does not require or is by nature not othering. There's no othering in direct presence or direct experience, and that we can 
actually say, as you're saying, we can say that we all share that because it's below the part of the mind that creates the other to begin with. So that I can see that that's a beautiful way of putting it. Yeah. We could say below the mind. We could say prior to the mind that creates that. Yeah. Transcendent. It's, it's, yeah, I guess the time and space would be, <laughs> would be a uh, descriptive, but I see what you're saying that at the source, if we're speaking in terms of relative and absolute, the source of the energy of this collective injustice is the first moment of the othering. If we could go there, then we can we can all actually collectively rest in that space, no matter who we are, where we come from, what our points of view are, because we're sort of leaving that at the door, right? We're, we're sort of stepping back from that and, and going deeper and not starting with the belief system where letting go and mutually meeting in a space, like you say, the heart of who we are, which is that place that proceeds or is. Yeah, this book aims to recognize that we're not going to have the peace that we long for without addressing that fundamental root source of distortion or that fundamental distortion. Mm-hmm. It's right. not a source of distortion. The The perception of separateness is the the distortion. Right, that the is fundamental. It. Yeah, distortion. fundamental one. Right, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the way you've taken something that can be seen as really mystical and really ephemeral. Uh, with this absolute and relative, can be a very mystical teaching. It can be something that feels very conceptual or transcendental. And you've really grounded it. And I love the way you've done this. Has really grounded it in not only your practical experience as a as a meditator, but then it has direct applicability to the other. So you're sort of working on both ends simultaneously because the way you're going about it, right? Your goal is to return to that collective and work from that space because that's where we sort of need to meet in order to move forward. Yeah. I'm interested in what world would we create together if it were being created on behalf of our direct experience of shared being? how would the world look differently? Yeah. Right now we have a relative plane existence that is so often reflecting a collective ego, a collective shared agreement, not a shared, not shared being, but shared topical agreements about processes of othering processes of separation. Right. And that's where our arguments come in. I often hear from students uh, who say, I don't want to continue sort of yelling back and forth about I'm right, you're wrong, this side, that side, but I don't know what else, like how else do we do it? And what I'm seeing clearly now that you're speaking in those terms is that once that art, that argument arises because of the otherness, because of the separateness and you don't get out of the argument by changing the argument and you don't get out of the argument by reinforcing it or being more right than the other person or trying to prove or convert someone to your side. It's about transcending and getting beyond that whole tension and then re-engaging with each other from that place. Yeah. And I'm even sometimes wary of the word transcending because it makes it sound like we're going to go somewhere else, but actually the entire argument is an illusory creation. The entire argument is stemming out of a distortion 
that is the perception of separation. Right. So I, I agree with the, the core of what you're saying so much because at the, we, we have to ask, what is it that's creating the argument? Is this argument arising on behalf of my direct experience of shared being? Or is this <laughs> argument arising on behalf of my ego? Is this, right? And that's why that Rumi quote is so famous, right? Like, I'll meet you there out beyond the field of right and wrong. What's, what's being pointed to, we all long for. Right. What is the field beyond right and wrong? What is the field beyond self and other? That's how I talk about the heart of who we are. It's the field beyond self and other. I love it. So I wanted to highlight what you just said about the question, what is creating the conflict? I find that to be such an incredible reframe because there's this exhaustion and inherent aggression might be a strong word, but there's a sort of violence to getting wrapped up in the argument, right? Trying to create peace by proving the rightness of your side. And that question you asked, like, well, what's creating that? What creates, I felt a sense of release in my body, like, oh, I don't have to argue or debate or confront. Not that those things don't have a practical relative significance, right. of course. I'm not saying there's nothing at the yes. level of systems and yeah. politics. I'm not saying that. But experientially, it really moved me to say I can, I can let go of that anger of wanting to be right or that feeling of battle that I get as an activist that wears me out and kind of contracts my heart by asking myself that question I return to the to that sense of well what is the heart of who we are where is that argument being created from and I'm going to ask myself that next time I end up getting in a debate about something because that that felt very much like you're directing the heart towards compassion you're directing the heart towards self-awareness and authentic communication with the other person from, like you said, a shared place of being. Yeah, I mean, when we look around the world today, we really can't expect people who have no practice whatsoever to know how to touch a sense of shared being in the middle of a conflict if we can't do it. Mm -hmm. And I feel that that's part of what gets left out in an approach to practice that focuses so much on like just personal suffering and, and leaves out all the nuances of what's happening in the collective realm of experience because collectively it's not just about cleaning up our own our own stuff it's about seeing as you just pointed out like how am i entering the conversation from a distorted frame how am i entering the room from a place of self versus other you versus me right versus wrong what shifts in the room when before I've even walked in, I've remembered to go back to the, the phrase that comes up so much or the word that comes up so much. I've remembered what is shared. And then the conversation happens from there. That doesn't mean I agree with you. Right. You and I right. could, I'm sure if we talked long enough, we could find something to disagree about. And that sure. could be very interesting. Can we have a disagreement while completely focused on what is shared? And then how does the nature of that conversation change, shift? What feels different? What's different in our bodies? What's different in the tone of the conversation? Just based on what we're remembering. Yeah, that's lovely. I love that so much. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. That's beautiful. So what are we going to argue about? <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> we can argue about rebirth and karma. That always triggers people. <laughs> Let's pick something juicy. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, Caverly, I'm really curious about, often I'm asked by fellow practitioners and activists, where to begin when the meditator feels sort of stuck between the personal and the collective, when they feel oftentimes students will come to me, and I'm seeing this a lot more, which makes sense with the cultural crisis and climate change and all of this stuff, where students come to me with this sense of guilt or almost shame about practicing too much on the cushion and not being out in the world. And they're struggling to balance. Like, what is the balance between these two? My relative process of healing. And and it, it creates a stress. It keeps people up at night, in fact. So I'm curious, what might be your suggestion for meditators who maybe are just getting introduced to bringing their practice out into the world? And maybe they've been practicing for quite a few years and now suddenly climate change is here and Black Lives Matter is arisen and they're having to question their practice. What do I do now? What do I do next? What would your advice be for someone who's beginning this inquiry? Well, Gregory, I love that you're bringing this question in right after what we were both just riffing off of because in a way it's a very similar uh, process that, I'll say this, a very similar process could be applied here. So rather than staying inside the limited conversation about what percentage do I focus on outside and what percentage do I focus on inside, we could take that step back and ask, what is it that's splitting reality into outside and inside? Ah, wow. What is that? What is the origin of that perception? So instead of bouncing in, okay, I'm going to now do 60% of my attention and my (laughs) practice on outside and then 40% of my, right? Like, and then we're just going through our (laughs) weeks, like shifting our percentages and wondering why I'm not happy. And it's because I'm just reinforcing this idea that there is this solid fixed I and that I is separate from other so how am I going to be in relationship with other? And that's that's where all the money comes. I mean, I would be in a I would be really rich if I had just gone down the road of self improvement, right? Like people <laughs> love that shit. Like let me just <laughs> let me just help you believe you're going to be a better person. But all of it's reinforcing the notion of ego. Even even the idea that if through mindfulness practice I'm going to become more responsive rather than reactive on one layer of experience. Of course, that's true and really helpful, really great. But until we ask, what is it that's working on itself? What is it that's trying to improve? What is it that's trying to get just the right balance of inside-outside? What is it it that perceives inside-outside? Right. Yeah, what's creating the guilt? What's creating the concern? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What's creating the process of separation. Right. And until we're resting in an experience that recognizes that that as a tiny little created conversation versus reality, then we're living inside the test tube of a reality that is actually just a test tube. It's a tiny little glass jar. It's the limited mind at it's that the point. The limited mind. Right. 
Gotcha. So basically, you wouldn't encourage me to create an app that people can download <laughs> that would allow them to chart throughout the week what percentage of their practice is for themselves and what percentage is for other. I <laughs> would I would encourage you to create that app if what you're trying to do is make money off the ego. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the least that the ego can do for me. Is give me <laughs> At least you could make some money, <laughs> some off, money it. off that that's sucker. So, yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate that that conversation. That is such a powerful reframe. And that is what I really enjoy, I think, most about the book. Again, I haven't finished it yet, but I am about halfway through. And just the way that it's, there is no separation as you're in your teachings. It's self, other, It's there's no like, first we do this and then we go out. It's trying to do what you just said, which is eliminate the distortion to begin with. And that was very refreshing in my perspective, mm -hmm. coming from a Theravada Buddhist where there is a lot of emphasis on solo practice and individuality. This is was I found really refreshing. Well, and let me be clear, this comes from, again, my own longing for reconciliation. The monastic training I had couldn't been couldn't have been more dramatically an inward facing path. You know, the neti neti process of not this, not that, not this, not this, remove all distractions until what you're left up with or what you're left with at the end of the day is something authentic. But it was deeply inward focused. Yes. yes. Um, and I do think that we've reached a time in the evolution of human consciousness where there's a readiness because there's a matched longing to move beyond that idea that we do an inward facing path and then we can apply it outward. I think we're, we're ready to graduate from that. Beautifully put. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, this was wonderful. So nice to meet with you. I'm so happy for you and excited for folks to read the book. If folks want to find out more about you, where do they go to find out more about you and connect with you? And where do they get where and when do they get the book? Well, it comes out November 29th through Sounds True. So you can get the book wherever you get books. And there's a landing page on my website that I invite folks to check out just because it's got so many, I feel so honored to have a lot of wonderful um, endorsements for this book. And I'm very stimulated by the process of receiving endorsements because I didn't know it when I was uh, seeking endorsements for the book, but the collective of endorsements is reflective of the book itself. So it's not just Buddhist teachers, for example, that are endorsing the book. Um, they're scientists endorsing the book. Um, it's not just uh, white folks endorsing the book. That, mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. was really important to me, that it, there's there's diversity on all fronts. There are folks who are non-dual teachers who are endorsing the book. There are folks from various Buddhist traditions. Wonderful. And I, that just, I mean, that just sparks one last question here. Who is the ideal audience for the book? That makes me think like that's very interesting that you said that. And I noticed it too when I was looking at the the folks on the back and the quotes and there was a huge diverse group of people. Was Dan Siegel on there too, I think? Yeah, Dan Siegel. That's amazing. Um, Rick Hansen is in there. Um, yeah, I, I set out to write a book that both Rupert Spira, the, are you familiar with Rupert Spira? He's a non-dual teacher. I set out to write a book that both Rupert Spira and Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams could could endorse. And it felt nice. like a really tall order in a lot of ways, just because of their different entry points to truth. Both just such highly respected people or people in my life that I respect so, so highly um, and coming in through very, very different 
different doorways to explore experience. And so, yes, those, I feel grateful that the eclecticness of the, the endorsements felt reflective of, of the book in, in a way that surprised me and uh, also delighted me. So the landing page has more about the people who have supported the book. And I also like to mention that because I like to point people to those people's work as well. This is about collective freedom. So who else might have words that you feel drawn to because that's a framing you hadn't heard before? I'm a big fan of, you know, find find the song that's being sung that reverberates through your heart with ease. You know, find the find the place that just lights you up because it's something you hadn't heard before or hadn't heard in that way before. I'm a big fan of uplifting collective wisdom. Wonderful. Is that uh, caverlymorgan.org? It's caverlymorgan.org. And I'm also going to be guiding a year-long collective experience around the book in 2023 with Rashid Hughes. And I'm excited about that. With just We're coming in through such a different doorways, and it'll be nice to be able to have affinity groups during the year-long experience. We're going to go through a chapter a month in the oh, wow. of the book. And so it'll be a, a year-long experience to explore the the practices of the book in, in community. Yeah, That's incredible. Well, thanks for your time, Caverly. It was just awesome being with you today. Thank you so much. Just a real delight. Thank you. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.